This episode, I'm talking to Noah Labhart about why he left his corporate job, creating a mobile app agency, and his current role as the CTO and co-founder of Variable. He's also the host of the Code Story podcast. Noah, welcome to Software Sessions. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Excited to be here. Let's go back to the start of your career as an employee of Alcon. What was the type of work you were doing? Alcon was my actually my second job out of college. My first job was with uh, Software Architects, and I only did that for a year. And that was a, as a consultant, a .NET developer. Then I got the opportunity to move to Alcon, and I stayed there for eight years. And the work I did there was more enterprise IT, buy versus build type software, project management, and then team leadership. I worked in three different groups while I was there across the eight years. Uh, for three and a half, I worked in document management. So that was imaging, repositories. Uh, we worked very closely with our compliance department on retention and and destruction of documents when they were you know, past their, their prime. And then after that, I actually flipped the script and started working for sales um, in sales compensation. So I, I was team lead over a, a few individuals that we were over the systems um, which calculated sales commissions. And that was, that was very eye-opening to learn how the sales organization worked, how the compensation plans were structured and how they were all calculated. That was really interesting. And then I moved to more of an applicable role to what I do today. I worked in the manufacturing plant as an IT manager. So I had a group of six IT individuals and oversaw engineering groups and their use of machines, their server needs, some of our our regulated systems, MRP and ERP systems as well, and just sort of general managerial support of the IT group there. Um, it's a heavy regulated environment being Alcon is, you know, I care products. So we'd do a lot of validation, a lot of work with our QA groups. And, uh, we were just heavily involved in the plant processes itself. Um, so I learned a lot about manufacturing there. So that before I left Alcon, that was my last role. You said you got to see sort of the, the sales, the marketing, the money in terms of how much you're spending on personnel, I'm assuming, and on things that are sort of external to just the, the technical aspect what it means to be a manager, run different parts of a business. And so that was very formative in gaining the experience you needed. That's right. Yeah, I, I got to see a lot of different things. Got I got to see it from a managerial perspective too, but uh, like you mentioned, see the different business functions in action and how they were using IT and how they were using systems and software and being able to see how it solved or created more problems for those individuals. So it really helped me think in that those terms whenever I was writing software, building software, or choosing a, a piece of software to use. Yeah, that's an interesting point in terms of, you know, I think as software developers, we often think of software as being the thing that's going to um, help your work become more efficient, but sometimes it actually is the opposite. It actually gets in the way and actually just wastes your time. That's right. Yeah. And, and I saw that um, a handful of times at Alcon, you know, we had some software that solved a problem but you know did it in a not very efficient way and our you know business counterparts really it, it was frustrating and you know as a an IT guy at that point um, you know at first I didn't really understand until I started looking at it through their lenses and it, it was pretty eye-opening what's an example of a case where you saw that you may, may have thought things were okay but they told you like hey no this is actually this is not a good use of our time or, or our resources. Sure. So we spent um, probably three to four months rolling out a new software compensation system for one of the Salesforce groups. Uh, you know, we had promised it was going to be you know faster. We had promised it was going to be more accurate, easier to configure because the plans changed on a regular basis. And it accomplished some of those things. But the way that it did it uh, and the way that we rolled it out created more work and validation for the finance department in those commissions. So so they were having to essentially do, do it both ways, do it manually through Excel that they had been doing for a long time and verifying commissions um, and then also validating our system. And when the system you know, was wrong, they didn't have time to wait on us to fix it. So it really created a lot of dual uh, work there you know, that it really wasn't, really wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to eliminate problems, mm -hmm. eliminate work. 
you said this had to do with software compensation. Is that what you said? That's right. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, if I said software, my, my bad. It's uh, sales compensation. So sales, sales commissions. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And then so there was this manual process that people were following using Excel, you know, to calculate what the compensation should be. And um, they were very familiar with that process and it kind of worked for them. And when you added this sort of software piece that was supposed to do calculations for them, they would do the process they would do before, and then they would also have to put it into this new tool. So it was basically just creating work for them. That's right. Yeah. And it, it created duplicate work. And, you know, when they were calculating sales commissions on a, you know, a monthly or a quarterly basis, um, their, their schedules were full. You know, there was a lot of people to calculate this for. It wasn't their only thing that they were, you know, working on. And so having to all of a sudden do double work in that really, really threw a wrench in their process mm -hmm. and, and it was pretty frustrating for them. Yeah. Yeah. Totally makes sense. So tell me about the moment that you realized that you wanted to leave or you realized that you weren't being effective anymore at the company? There was a lot of great people at Alcon. Alcon's a great company. I was well taken care of. I was um, given lots of opportunity. You know, was, I had moved up to a manager's role pretty quickly. Um, so nothing bad to say about the company or working there. I, I learned a lot and I definitely took a lot away from it. But the, the last year, Last part of year and a half I was there, just really started to feel like I wasn't making a difference. No matter how hard I worked or how much we did as a team, we were still just keeping the lights on. We weren't really innovating. We weren't, you know, moving the needle. We weren't making things better. And that bothered me. Um, that really bothered me that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm built in such a way that I want to change things for the good. I want to help and I want to change things for the better. And just wasn't seeing that. Um, you know, I, I was seeing positive reflection in my team that I was managing and, you know, in, in their lives and in their careers. And so that was fulfilling, but the moving the needle from a business standpoint just wasn't happening. So I started to, you know, think about what else I could do, you know, what, what else I wanted to. Uh, I had a buddy of mine, uh, Chris Graby, he's one of my best friends in the world. Uh, he and I started kind of tinkering with mobile apps um, on the side. And I had done software for a long time but never learned how to build mobile apps. So I jumped in and started to learn how to build iOS apps on the side. Um, and I just loved it. I just fell in love with mobile development and the space, the thought process around user experience and the real estate that is very limited on a mobile phone and how you had to think about it. And so we built a bunch of apps on the side and I thought, you know, I can, I can do this full time. I don't have to be doing this on the side. I can give this a shot. Um, so at that point I decided, you know, after some, after some serious conversations with my wife, who was very supportive, uh, she was absolutely amazing through this whole process. Uh, Cause we had, I mean, we had two kids uh, or we had one kid and one kid on the way or two kids. I don't remember exactly. Um, and so, but she was very supportive of, of the change. And so I decided to jump out on my own, just give it a shot. Why do you think that happened at the end of your career? Like, was there something about how the company was structured or something about, you know, your role? Like what, what, what do you think it was? Sure. Um, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about it from that angle, but what, what comes to mind, there were two things I think that were going on for me. One, Alcon had just been acquired. They've recently been diverged or divested or, or whatever the, the word is. Um, at that time, they had been acquired by Novartis. And so there was a lot of integration work going on between the two massive companies. And all of it very necessary, all of it part of the, you know, the acquisition, uh, but nothing that inspired me, nothing that was innovative. It was all just procedurally based and keep the lights on type of tech work. And so I think that had a little bit to do with it. Um, the other part is just kind of realizing the big box corporate America setup, you know, no matter the amount of good people that I was surrounded with and the opportunity I was surrounded with in the big box corporate world, it's how do I say, well, there's two things that are coming to mind actually. So from the big spot, big box corporate world, it's hard to make a difference. It's hard to move the needle if you're, you know, a small, 
um, IT group or an individual contributor. That's just that's sort of the the fact of the matter. And the second part to add to that is when your product is not technology, when your product is not software, your group or your function is a necessary evil, so to speak. And I don't mean that people thought IT people were evil, but more of like you know, it's a it's a expense to be managed. It's not a strategic tool to use. And so I felt that I, I felt that, you know, I was, I was a group that was, uh, keeping the lights on and, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, that just wasn't enough for me. And did you feel that at the start of your career, um, that that was, that that was different, that people did kind of put a priority on, you know, your team's work and that it kind of shifted to becoming basically this cost center or is it more like it was always that way? That's a great question. Uh, it it really was always that way. I think my head was in a different place when I first started at Alcon. I was busy, you know, doing outside things. I was I was playing in a rock band. I was you know I was younger. I was single back then, and so you know I was I had a job to. I wanted to have a good job, and I wanted to to be working at a place that was you know that was stable but I didn't really have that entrepreneurial buzz going on in me because my, my head was in a different place. Once I met my wife and we started our family and you know, started moving down that path, things started to shift for me. And I think that entrepreneurial desire started to bubble up within me, the, the desire to you know, sort of take uh, a hold of what I'm working on and, and put as much effort into it and get as much reward out of it as the effort I put into it. Yeah. So it sounds like there were changes within yourself that kind of changed what was interesting to you. And there was also the aspect of the acquisition where it seemed like you were probably, like you said, you were doing work that needed to be done in terms of integrating with the company who purchased you. But to you, it probably felt like um, kind of retreading old ground, like you were doing work to get to a point that you had already been to, and that didn't seem that interesting to you. Yeah, that's that's well said. Uh, you know, retreading, kind of doing the same thing again. Just it wasn't wasn't something I wanted. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it it seems like there's so many acquisitions. I guess when it comes to things related to software, and it seems a lot of times for the people who are already there, the acquisition really ends up changing the culture and it ends up changing sort of who wants to stay. And um, I've always found that really interesting in terms of, you know, companies will sometimes they'll, they'll acquire because they want the, the talent, but by acquiring, they really change the, you know, the company they're acquiring and the talent they want may no longer want to stay there. Right. That's absolutely true. That, that definitely happened with the Alcon Novartis you know, acquisition. There were two different cultures going on. And that was that was very challenging. Um, you know, it's funny. Alcon was owned by Nestle before that, and um, definitely two different cultures there too. But Nestle left Alcon alone and said, "You're your own thing," and we recognized that. and And I think Alcon thrived that way. And the Novartis uh, acquisition was was done differently, and you know, different different views on it. I, I don't fault anybody for it, but I have seen that acquisition that it, when you try to merge two cultures, it's it can be destructive. It can be really a really difficult task. For sure. I want to go into, you, you mentioned how you started a mobile app company with a friend right after uh, leaving Alcon. Kind of what was your experience going out the gate? Like, did you, did you have any big struggles when you first started out? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> had one really big defining struggle actually. So I started the a mobile agency on the side with my friend and we were taking on some projects. And this was while I was still at Alcon. And then whenever I decided to go full time, he actually pulled out. He said I I can't do this full time. He's like I'm I'm, you know, interested in in staying involved part time, but I can't can't do it full time. He he had a, you know, another full time gig uh, he was doing. And I was like, cool, man, no, no problem. I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep going. As long as you're cool with that, then, then let's do that. And, and it, was, it was fine. And so when I left Alcon, we had a few projects on the, in the pipeline. One was, uh, was going okay. 
and one was not going so hot. So I hadn't been a business owner. I hadn't been a freelancer. I hadn't been running remote teams or anything like that. Um, but I had done project management and I, I built software. So I, I took on projects thinking, no problem. I, I can do this. This is, this is just the same type of stuff I've been doing. And I was rudely awakened um, that I bit off way more than I can chew on this one particular project. We were supporting a beauty salon in Connecticut. I'm based in Texas. So I put together a developer team, put a bid out there for this job and, and got the job. I bid it way too low because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> and I hired developers to do part of the work, but not didn't scope it enough. Um, and I should have scoped it enough and bid a lot more. Um, so quickly, you know, I lost control of that project, didn't have enough money, was way over budget and basically had to, like I paid all the developers and basically I had to go to the client and say, I, I'm, I can't do this for you anymore. Um, which was extremely difficult and humbling. Um, I don't think I slept a wink the night before, uh, woke up, well, I didn't sleep, but probably, you know napped a little bit, but woke up several times just, you know, with my heart pounding, had to get on the phone and just say, Hey, I've lost control of the project. Tried to give her the software we had built and just say, Hey, this is what you have paid for thus far. And she obviously didn't like that. Started to get in, in conversations about bringing legal things into uh, the, the equation. And I said, look, no, let's not do this. I'll just refund all of your money. You keep the software and you keep and you keep the money. So I had to dip into my personal savings and refund all of the money that she had paid us thus far, um, which was not an insignificant amount of money. Um, so that was a really hard lesson out of the gate. I mean, that was the first three months out of corporate America. And it was it was really, really tough. But looking back on it, it was it was a character building moment for me professionally, entrepreneurially to learn that hard lesson right then. And to date, I still employ the same things that I've learned from that lesson, which is to take steps, start small and take steps in building software and building teams. Like what do you need today? And at that point, what I needed was I knew how to build software and I knew how to write mobile apps. So I'm just going to start my agency and it's just going to be me. And I'm going to go work on some projects. And I started to do that, took on several projects, got overloaded and said, okay, what do I need now? I've got several projects and I can't do them all. I need help. So I started to bring on part-time help, got overloaded, up that to full-time help, and then built the team uh, over the years based on our project needs. Um, and that, seemed, that, that worked out. Looking back, it sounds like if you were to have that customer again, you at that stage in your business, you most likely wouldn't have taken the work because you you think it was too much too early on in your business. Yes, yeah, I, I think it was way too much to manage um, at the state I was in. Um, the state of learning, you know, there's so much learning that goes into just being an entrepreneur, not even you know building software for clients. It's it's just even running a business and and bidding on work. Uh, you know, I should have tripled my bid that I bid on this project. I was way off. And if I knew what I know now back then, I would have said, thanks, but this, it's not it's not a good fit for me. Taking on the smaller projects, working on your own, what would you say were, you know, the big lessons you you learned and were able to use to grow your your consulting business? That's a good question. You know, the primary one was was the one that I that I mentioned, just being able to take take steps. So start with what you know, and then build on top of that. So I started to take on projects myself and build some income, and then basically grow with my growth. You know, so a few projects on my plate. Okay, now I need some help. Uh, bring on some help. So that was a that was a big big lesson to learn in the very beginning. The other part, I learned how important networking was. I started to network with not only, you know, software dev agencies saying, Hey, I'm, I'm here to white label. If you need a, you know, a developer, you need a developer or two. I'm here to white label. If you need just a, a agency you can trust, 
um, or hey, I'm 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 new to this game. How you know what sort of um, what sort of info can I glean from you? You know, how, can, what advice do you have for me? And then also partnering with design agencies because a lot of design agencies have amazing designers and they get approached for mobile apps and websites and things, but they don't have people in house to do it. So it's essentially white label for them as well. And that was really important. Those first few projects that I started working on, um, just me, were all from networking. We're all from just talking to people. They weren't people reaching out to me. It was me reaching out to them. So I'd say both of those things were were really important for the success of, of TouchTap moving forward. And how are you finding these people, you know, to network with? And how did you convince them as a new business that you were somebody they could trust? That's a great question. So a lot of people that I met were through mutual friends. Um, so I would start you know, just talking to people that I knew and then start there and they might know a person or two. And then I would just move down the line and start talking to that person and they might know a person or two. So the network effects really take place pretty quickly, but earning trust was, was interesting. You know, you have to prove yourself and you have to be willing early on, I think to take a little less money than what you may be worth and and prove that you can you know you can do a great job build a portfolio so you can point to it and say hey this shows you that i've that i've done it that i can do it and that you can trust the work i'm doing so a lot of that a lot of um sort of humble beginnings of you know i'll do this for for cheaper than what i probably could but it will it will you know get us in a place where we have some trust the other part was to um to help them in any way I could, you know, if there's, if they needed to find a designer, I'd try to help them find some people or if they needed something, I'd try to help them some in some way, you know, some other networking, uh, some people that I might know that could use their services. I would, I would toss them their way, uh, connect them with people that I might know, um, you know, that could connect them with people. So the, the networking favors really pays off a lot too in earning trust saying, okay, this guy's, uh, going to do what he says. So that's, that's important. Being as helpful as you can and people remember that. And when you actually come back with some work, then, you know, they'll be willing to give you a shot potentially. That's right. You know, you had mentioned you were three months out from leaving Alcon and you had that big project that didn't go well in terms of having to give back the money, having to dip into your savings. What were you kind of thinking at that time in terms of why you decided to keep going versus, you know, decide to go back and take another job. Right. So, you know, that was a pivotal moment. It was like, what did I just do to my family? (laughs) I was thinking, uh, I just made a mistake. This isn't working. Um, should I go back and get a job? And to be honest, all credit goes to my wife for that. She, she was the rock and she was like, no, this is part of the journey. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a stepping stone and it's, it's, you know, it sucks, but we're gonna, we're gonna learn from it and you're gonna do great. So, you know, stop crying in the corner and get up, (laughs) you know, she didn't say that, but, but she was very supportive and was like, you know, this is, it's not optimal and we, we don't want to be here, but it doesn't mean we give up. There's something, you know, there's still something for you to go do in this. So go do it. So all credit to her uh, in that she's an amazing, beautiful woman. And so both you and her understood that, like, even though that this didn't work out in this instance, that was definitely still something you wanted to pursue in terms of running your own business. Like that was the thing that was going to make you happy. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there was no really going back to the corporate world and back into the, you know, sort of mild depressed state of just, you know, what am I, what am I doing? Just kind of spinning my wheels here. And, um, I have more to give more to give to the world than, than what I'm, you know, the results I'm seeing right here. And she saw that and she saw that through the year and a half that I was struggling with it, um, at Alcon still. So, um, she was very, very good to remind me of that. So when you were at Alcon, I'm assuming you were involved in hiring there, right? Yes. And so when you started your own agency and you mentioned how you started just doing the work yourself, but then you gradually started to to hire as the workload became too much, 
What would you say were the differences between hiring for a corporation versus hiring for your agency? Well, that's a great question. It's, they were uh, night and day different. So at the corporation, you know, we're sort of hiring based on predetermined guidelines on, you know, you've got to have a bachelor's or a master's. You've got to have five years of experience. You've got to know this technology, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the bar was set really high. In my agency, oh, and, and also at Alcon, it was all in office. There's no more remote, remote work. They, they started to do some at, towards the end of my time there, but there was no remote work. And so um, with the agency, though, we were fully remote. We were uh, remote across you know, the United States and Canada. We had a couple of people in Europe and one in London. And that was a totally different dynamic. Uh, you know, the first couple of people that I worked with, I did, I was able to meet in person cause they were local to Texas. Um, but after that it was, it was all over the place. And so, you know, how I hired people was more, uh, and this wasn't, I don't think this was the right way to do it, uh, looking back on it, but it was more about, I'm going to hire you as a contractor and I'm going to measure you on the work you're going to produce, not necessarily you know, long-term fit. So the, the project-based nature of the work we did at TouchTap made it to where we had a lot of contractors working off and on for the team. We didn't really have a full-time, full-time team. That was really good from the sense of I didn't have to look for the right people. I had to hire uh, professional hands, if that made sense. And so that, that made the project worked uh, or it made the hiring a little bit simpler because it was all about rates and project duration and quotes and things like that. But what it didn't allow me to do was gain experience in finding the right people in, in finding people because I worked with some great people. So I don't, I don't want to say that they were, they were bad. They were awesome. I worked with some awesome people at, at TouchTap and, and they're, they were all amazing. I learned a lot from them, but I didn't hire them based on their fit for a team culture that I was trying to build. It was all about how are we getting the work done? And so I'd say, you know, variable was the one where, where, where I really learned how to hire culture fit over, you know, just getting the job done. During your time at TouchTap, what was your time primarily spent on? You know, like you have these contract developers that are working for you, uh, you're a developer yourself. How much time are you actually spending developing versus getting new clients versus kind of just uh, process or, or business type stuff that needs to be handled? Sure. So in the beginning, I was doing all of that. I was developing, I was, you know, pitching, I was putting together bids, I was invoicing, I was doing all of the, all of the stuff. As we started to get more people on, you know, I say an account manager and or a project manager or other developers to come in on the big projects and help, I was able to take my hands off the actual coding and focus more on the sales, the quoting, the bids, the networking, and then the invoicing and all that sort of stuff. So towards the you know towards the end of TouchTap, um, which TouchTap is still around right now, but just kind of wound down to not much at all. But towards the end of TouchTap, I was primarily just doing invoicing and a little bit of BD work. Give me a sense of you were talking about how it's basically winding down. How do you end up with a business that's kind of not bringing you profit or not bringing you value? Sure, that's a that's a good question. Um, it's interesting. The first three years of TouchTap were upward growth. We grew the pipeline. We started to bring on bigger clients, longer term engagements, uh, and it was good. And during that time, towards the end of that three year time frame, I really started focusing primarily on variable. And I uh, tried to do both. And it it's very difficult to do both. Variable isn't bootstrapped. Um, we, we have investors and, but touch tap is, so it's very limited as far as how I, what sort of resources I can put forward to grow that business. I didn't put the same amount of effort into touch tap that I did variable. 
And, and so TouchTap just kind of started to dwindle. It kind of started to become difficult to, you know, get clients. Um, our processes weren't exactly working. We weren't doing a ton of marketing. Um, we were losing some clients. The team members were kind of losing interest too. You know, all that sort of culminated last year, uh, summer f- time frame, and I stopped, you know, taking salary from the from the uh, the business because there, there wasn't money to do it, and it became a point where it's like this just it's not it's not working anymore. And you know, having some successes in other areas too with variable and with with the podcast, then you know, it makes it like, well, why am I why am I banging my head against the wall for you know my my baby? It was my first one. You know, I had a good run, so I should probably dial it down. So it's it's kind of like it still exists in name, but kind of what it was is kind of is gone in terms of all of the customers and all of the sort of interest. Um, and so it's sort of something that you trying to figure out how to close out, but not quite sure how to do it yet. Yeah, I, mean, I think I have a pretty good handle on 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 how to close it out. Kind of hand off the projects to the developers that are working on it. You know, the the customers get a deal, the developers get a deal, and they get to continue working on it. Most of those projects right now are all support projects anyway, so it's infrequent work. So I'll I'll keep TouchTap around. Um, you know, the site up and the entity around. I run the podcast through the entity, but. But as far as taking on new work, um, I'm more, I'm quickly to respond saying, hey, we don't have the resources to take on your project. Check out these agencies who we trust and and they will take care of you. And so next I want to talk about variable. Can you kind of give a brief explanation of what variable does? Yeah. So what we've built at variable, it's an on-demand marketplace for manufacturing and warehousing labor. So we enable manufacturing businesses to ramp up and ramp down their workforce, their labor capacity with their demand. So we're a third new tier of labor. You have full-time work, you've got temp staffing, which is essentially like short-term full-time work. And then you've got us that you can ramp up and ramp down your workforce for those uh, spikes and falls in your demand. From a worker side, since we are a marketplace, from the worker side, we offer daily pay, flexible schedules, different diverse work opportunities. You don't have to work for the same company every day. You can string together a, a set of work. You can make that schedule work for you. So, if, you know, if you've got responsibilities during the week that you can't really do a full-time, you know, eight to five job, you can work on the weekends, you can work at nights. Um, you can piece together the, all the work that you want to. And you can stay in the industry that you know, which is manufacturing or logistics or uh, any sort of supply chain industrial environment. Uh, we support. So that, that's that's a, a high level, 30,000 foot view of, of what variable is. You as a potential worker, you would say like, hey, these are my skill sets and these are the times that I would like to work. And then companies can post the opportunities they have. And it kind of matches the two up where you're not necessarily a full-time employee or a part-time employee in, in terms of I'm going to be there on this day every month but rather like I could work, you know, four days a month or something like that for one company and five days uh, at another company, that sort of thing. Yeah, that, that's right. So you do, you input your skills and then you, you don't set a preferred schedule, but you bid on the work that, that is preferred to you. So there's a, basically a dashboard feed of, of work in your area that you can pick from and the work could be, you know, eight hours uh, or one day, or it could be, you know, a week long set of work. Um, it could be a piece, uh, by the piece you could be paid by, I got to build 500 widgets and I make 10 bucks a widget. So there's lots of different options for businesses to post work on there and lots of, lots of different options for workers to go, to go get work. And you mentioned that this was a, a venture backed company. How did you sort of validate the idea in terms of knowing that this is somebody or something people would pay for? And how did you convince uh, investors that, that this was something that was going to work? Great question. As far as how we went about it in the beginning, um, we started with the friends and family kind of round and all credit goes to my partner, uh, Mike Kinder. I was focused primarily on building the software and he was 
doing the fundraising and and making sure we had everything we needed to uh, get a team and you know get a space and and all of the technology expenses we needed to pay for. So as far as the pitch, he he's the one that came up with the idea and 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 he's the one that kind of put the initial pitch together and how we went about you know convincing really aligned with his original hypothesis of you know you have all this stuff going on in manufacturing all this new technology that's incredibly expensive um, that people can't afford and and even if they could afford it there's not a way to solve their labor problem if you get all these cool widgets and cool tools in your manufacturing plant it's going to make your process better if you can't solve your capacity problem you're stuck they're not going to help you and so his pitch was this, you know, kind of macro to micro view of these are the trends in manufacturing. And then you dive into the manufacturing plant at a micro level and see that, hey, without people, without solving the people problem, none of this manufacturing is not going to move forward with this new technology. So um, that was a big part of the pitch. And, and you know, as, as, as it is with most startups, you know, there's a lot of no's, right? You know, there were a lot of... Uh, conversations with some no's, but there were the right ones with that are some yeses, um, that were some yeses. So, um, we have an amazing set of investment investors now, uh, an amazing board. Uh, and, and we're really, really fortunate to have the people that we have involved, um, financially. Do you think the reason you were both able to identify this need in terms of seeing this technology coming and seeing that this sort of unique model of staffing was going to be required is that because both of you had previously worked in the industry and that's why you were able to identify that? I think so. You know, it's, it's interesting. We've seen people try to attack this problem in a broad sense. Um, you know, we get compared to temp staffing a lot and we're not, we're not any, anywhere near temp staffing. We do understand why people think that way because it's all they know. We've seen some people try to enable temp staffing through technology. Um, you know, so the same type of technology that would hire a pizza delivery driver, you know, they would try to apply that technology to manufacturing, to an operational need. And it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work at all. Um, our solution is built as an operational tool for operations managers to be able to bring people in and, and uh, let, you know, let people back out into the market um, when the work is done. And that discrete work opportunity, that discrete breakdown of needs um, is super important to optimize, optimize your operation. When you were first starting Variable, tell me about the process of building the initial team. Like, how many people did you have? Uh, what were their roles and, and what was the hiring like? Sure. So early on, we hired a couple of engineers to start building a uh, web prototype uh, or finish the web prototype and build the back end. Uh, up to that point, I had been using my, my resources myself and then another team member at TouchTap to build sort of the early, the early prototype of the solution. And so when we started to realize, okay, we've got the prototype, we've got some friends and family money, let's build a team so we can really launch this thing. Uh, went out to AngelList and made some postings and started to sift through some some resumes and have some conversations and hired a um, hired a few people um, from the from AngelList. One of them notably his name's Andrew Plan. Uh, he's our solution architect and he's still with us today. And uh, so he was our he was hire number three uh, as a back end engineer. Uh, came from the Dev Mountain boot camp. Uh, program. So yeah, just early on hiring, hiring a handful of people to help us with the things that we needed help with right then, which technology wise was the back end and then the website. We also hired Angie Turner, who's a, a friend of our CEO, Mike, um, to sort of sell the app before the platform was live. Um, so that was, that was interesting. She was, she was selling the platform before, um, before the platform um, came into existence. So, you know, we, we got the, we got some good people in place in the very beginning to really help us with what we needed to start. And when you talk about selling the app, is that going to these manufacturing businesses and kind of telling them like, Hey, we're, we're building this app and getting them excited or interested in that beforehand? So it was actually, it was actually the reverse. So we, our hypothesis in the beginning was the supply, which would be the workers for us, 
uh, and the businesses um, would be the um, demand, that the supply was going to be harder. And so we focused a lot on that. We built the mobile app first, finished that, and then started recruiting and getting the app out there. What we figured out pretty quickly was that it was actually easier to get the supply than it was the businesses. There was a lot more education and a lot more explanation um, and mind shifting that had to go into the business side of things that we've accounted for today than was needed for the worker side. So, um, so it was a little bit easier to sell on the worker side. People would download the app, uh, even just to be put on the waiting list because they needed work. They were they wanted to be on the list uh, to be notified when there was work opportunity. So, yeah, ended up ended up you know selling quote unquote the mobile app by going to trade schools, colleges, you know areas where there were current manufacturing workers and things like that. Job boards trying to get people's attention to download the app. Yeah, so you were actually physically talking to people. You're going to where they, where they worked or where they lived, and and just showing them, or at least talking to them about the idea of the app. And so you had built up this kind of solid base of interest before you had anything. That's right. That's right. Um, so one of the things you talked about earlier when hiring for TouchTap was that you wish you had gotten to learn more about hiring for culture fit rather than just for technical skills or for costs. And so I'm wondering when you were hiring for variable, how did you how did you hire for culture fit? How did you look for the right people? That's a good question. Um, you know, I'm actually doing a talk soon at the Texas A&M Tech Summit about this this very thing. When we were looking for the people to join us at Variable, um, I say we because we we all Mike and I were a, a big part of it together. Uh, now I handle most of the uh, most, if not all, of the tech recruiting. What we were looking for is people that were gritty and hungry and wanted to solve a problem that no one was solving. And it was less about can you you know perform at this senior level you know, with this technology, or do you have massive amounts of experience? It was more about who are you and yeah, can you, can you do the job? We definitely want you to be able to do that, but can you grow with the, with a startup? Can you come in and be jazzed about what we're doing here and be able to wear multiple hats, be able to jump in, be able to work hard um, and be rewarded for it, be rewarded for that hard work. But can you come in and really latch onto what we're doing? And that's what we focused on early on in the beginning was, was a lot about the person, you know, a lot about who, who are you as a person? What are the qualities? What are the, the, um, the intangibles that you bring to the table? Um, not, I know how to do this technology or I've been doing this this long. It's like, I'm this type of person. Um, and that really worked out well because that's the type of culture we wanted to build at variable. And, and we did, and we, we have that today and it's, it's makes us move so much faster and with so much more quality, uh, in our work, in the product, in the way we address the market, um, having that, that team dynamic. And I think at, at TouchTap, I didn't I didn't do that because I wasn't focused on building a team culture. I was focused on making money, and you know that's that's not a bad focus. It's part of it, but it's not the whole story. It's not the whole picture. Uh, and I definitely learned that lesson um, moving to variable and really focusing on the whole picture of what we were recruiting for, what we were really trying to do. So it sounds like you're looking for people who are excited by. I guess the mission of the company, of the things that you're trying to do, um, the things you're trying to build, but also people who are in a way generalists in the sense that you have kind of all sorts of things that need to get done and they're willing to to learn or willing to jump on to taking care of those things rather than somebody who specializes in just this one thing and, and I'm hiring you just for this one thing. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, I, the generalist word, it's interesting. It, it rings a bell. I, I had a talk with Chris Slow, who was the founding engineer of Reddit here recently on, on my podcast. We talked about our hiring in those early days, and that's exactly the way he phrased it too, was like, you know, 
very capable generalists, people who are excited to do different things, who are willing to jump in and do what it takes to make it happen. Um, we definitely approached it, uh, definitely approached it that way and looked at those raw materials. And as you, you grew, I mean, how, how large is the engineering staff now? There are nine of us now counting me. Um, we're going to be growing to 12. We've got a few more people to hire. Mm. So not, not huge, mm -hmm. um, but definitely more than a few. Yeah. And so as the team has grown, have you stuck to kind of this concept of hiring for generalists, hiring for people who can kind of swap roles, or have you started to focus more on specific skills? That's a good question. We, we have focused a little more on specific skills, but we still hire for that sort of gritty wanting to hung, gritty hungry and wanting to do a bunch of different things we we bring people in to either do back-end work front-end work from a web standpoint or mobile work but we still bring people in that are excited about all of it and that are you know interested in all of it um, maybe not be doing it every day um, but are interested in in coming in and making a difference and we also, we bring in a lot of people. I've, I work with the Dev Mountain program, the Dev Mountain Bootcamp here in Dallas. And I've hired seven engineers from their program. And a lot of them are career changers. So, you know, uh, one of our, my lead front end developer, Brian Hudson, used to be an English teacher for many, many, many years. And now he's a software developer and he's amazing. He does, he does amazing work. And he can look at problems differently because he has a background as someone who is non-tech. Right. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, he has a tech, he's a tech minded individual, but he didn't do tech. He was the consumer of the tech. So he can look at things a lot differently than, than just your normal you know, comp sci programmer that, that only looks at things through the coding lens. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it just, it's not a real great fit for the culture we're trying to build. So hiring people that are switching careers. Uh, they tend to have a lot of excitement about their first coding job. Like, I, I did it. I finished the boot camp. I'm going to code. I'm going to, um, you know, get my first job in coding, and I want to do a good job. I want to get experience. I want to do as much as I can. I'll get a bunch of exposure. And that works out really well for them and for us um, because it creates that, that, you know, great relationship around that grit and that hunger. When you first started, you had, I believe you said three engineers. Is that, is that correct? That's right. Counting me. The sort of work that happens when you have three engineers in terms of the, the communication, I'm assuming, you know, it flows very freely. You all work very closely together. How has that changed as you've grown the team? Like in terms of how you communicate, in terms of how you assign tasks, that sort of thing. Sure. I think we're still growing in that. Um, right now, it's still pretty open. We definitely protect our collaborative environment and our collaborative culture. I think we'll always be that way. We'll always be the culture that says, hey, you, you, and you, let's get on the whiteboard and let's talk about this and just hash it out. As far as our processes, we are we are getting to the point where we need to get a few processes in place around you know, work cues and, and organization of breakdown from our roadmap to the work cues. It's really about visibility and resource loading so that, you know, so that it all makes sense. Um, one thing we have had to focus on um, a lot as we grew was DevOps. We had to really put in some, some time into, you know, building continuous integration on the mobile side and on the website and making sure that when we shipped code, uh, you know, it went to the right place. It was promoted to the right place automatically so we didn't have to to think about it. Um, so we definitely had to grow there, but I'd say we're still growing in other areas though. The way you personally feel coming to work, working on the problem has sort of the experience of that changed with the amount of growth you have, or has it felt mostly the same? It's definitely changed in the early days. We're making sure the thing works, right? We're making sure that payments flow. We're making sure that the the back end is up, you know, we're making sure that the mobile apps aren't crashing um, and we're smoothing out a lot of things. Nowadays, we're really solving the more intelligent type problems or more intelligence based problems of, you know, how are we automating this process for 
businesses or, or can we, or how are we, you know, serving up the best opportunities for our workers? You know, how are we breaking our platform down to make it the most performant platform it can be? So with these really fun feature problems and really fun engineering problems, you know, going from say monolithic architecture to microservices or, you know, building the apps to where it feels like magic that, that we almost know them personally and we're presenting the best opportunities or the best operators for them. So these are, those are really fun problems. And, you know, we, we have built a tight core product now that is working well and we can start to focus on the next sort of wave of, of, of fun stuff to build. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's gotten better and better and better. You know, it's, it's always been fun, but I'm, I'm a little bit, um, maybe a little bit weird. And I think that the, the hard stuff is really fun. That's, um, that's actually really good to hear because I think, you know, a lot of people sort of the stereotype is that when you first start a project and you're, you're building everything up from scratch, everything's exciting, right? Because, um, everything's new, um, everything's on fire and you're just trying to kind of like put things together. And then once you reach this state of, I guess, stability, then, maybe some of that initial excitement or the excitement of all these changes happening is no longer there. But in your case, you're kind of saying that actually, you know, once you have everything solid, then you can really focus on these problems that are that are really fun to you without worrying about whether the thing works or not, I guess, if that makes sense. Totally. Oh, that's, that's, that's the way it is here. You know, I, I don't think that it's it's like that for everybody. Um, I think it's it's a bit unique here, which is, which I'm really thankful for, that we have more stuff to build. You know, like we have this Tightcore product, and we have other things we can go focus on now. You know, and and still maintain that Tightcore product. We still pay attention to it, but but you know what what is the next? It's almost like startup on top of a startup. You know, what is the next thing we're trying to build here, which is really fun as a builder. I think it's probably a good time to start wrapping up. So is there anything that you wish I had asked or anything that you, you wanted to mention before we wrap up? Oh, I think you, I think you did great. I think we, we touched on pretty much everything I, I'd love for, you know, for your listeners to check out my podcast as well. Code story. Um, you can check it out at codestory.co or any other, any other major directories. And, um, you know, I'd love to be back on the show sometime, Jeremy, I really enjoyed the conversation and, um, yeah, I would love to have you on mine as well. Awesome. Yeah, I think like anybody listening to this podcast, I think will will really enjoy Code Story because it's sort of more of the the origin stories of how people build their businesses, and um, you have a lot of interesting guests. So I, everybody should definitely check it out. I appreciate that. Thanks, and great job with your show. Really enjoy it. Thank you. Yeah. And where can people kind of follow you or, or check out? You know what you're up to. Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn, um, not on any other social networks personally besides LinkedIn. So you can follow me there. Um, you can check out my personal website at noahlabhard.com um, that has uh, links and information about me. Um, you can check out Variable at variableops.com and you can check out what was TouchTap at touchtap.com. <laughs> um, and then again, Code Story, codestory.co. All right. Noah, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it. It's been fun. Show notes for this episode are at softwaresessions.com. If you enjoyed my conversation with Noah, go check out his podcast, Code Story, at codestory.co. All right, I'll see you next time.